0: Hi everybody, thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Drink, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host David Bernstein. Today we have got Eric Smith and Jason Littlefield with us. Little background, Eric Smith, he's a professor of rhetoric at York College, excuse me. And he's the author of a new book that's out called A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition. He's also the founder of Free Black Thought. Jason Littlefield was a former teacher in the Austin Independent School District. He was an SEL, Social and Emotional Learning Coach. He just left that, we'll hear a little bit more about that, to start his own SEL venture called Empower Pathways. So with, before we get to all that, you know, the first question is, what did we bring to the table? So Eric, did you bring a drink?
1: Sure did. Gatorade.
0: Ooh, what's the flavor? and
1: Crispin- yes. Yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm old school. I, 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 I like yellow and red. That's all I needed. Now everything's too fancy for me, but that's what
0: I'm drinking. All right, then. And Jason, what about you?
2: I'm floating back and forth between black coffee and ice water.
0: Okay. All right. And David, you're not doing a McDonald's Diet Coke today? No, no,
3: no, 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 no. I'm doing bourbon, Kentucky bourbon.
0: Okay. Well, then I have to tell you, I'm very proud of you because you are the only one drinking alcohol. Well, no, that's not true. I've got a virgin vodka lime, also known as water. But I want you guys to note <laughs> that I put little pinwheels on it to make my water look fancy. There, you, there go. you go. So cheers,
3: cheers. everybody. Make all the difference. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Glasses make a difference. So um, all right, you two. So I know Jason and Eric, you guys are both working together on several projects. You're working together at Free Black Thought. You're also working together with a theory of empowerment. And both of you, empowerment is a big deal for both of you. Eric, you write on this a lot. Your new book talks about empowerment. I'll start with you. Can you, for people who might not know, can you just lay out for us what is the theory of empowerment?
1: Well, yes. Uh, First, I should say that I didn't come up with this by any means. Uh, Psychologist Mark Zimmerman, uh, Douglas uh, Perkins, um, and a social worker named Judith uh, Lee uh, were my inspirations. Uh, They discuss and use empowerment theory in their work. And when I looked at empowerment theory, I saw a couple of things. I saw something that was inherently rhetorical. A lot of things are, but this is especially is for reasons I'll get into in a second. And second, it was a nice potential alternative for what's being called CRT these days, and how that manifests as um, you know implicit bias training, as well as uh, you know pedagogy in higher ed, and even to some extent K through twelve. So, what is empowerment theory? Okay, um, there are three components. Empowerment theory: the intrapersonal, the interactive, interactional rather, and the behavioral. The intrapersonal is all about self-awareness, self-management. Uh, I'm sure Jason is uh, familiar with all those things from uh, SEL, right? Uh, mindfulness, how to develop positive self-regard, which is looking at your strengths and weaknesses fairly realistically, so that you can better. You know, um, you know, uh, get rid of those weaknesses, right? and even strengthen those strengths. And so that's rhetorical because basically uh, it's how we talk to ourselves, how we convince ourselves, uh, you know to develop intrinsic motivation, um, how we convince ourselves of how to look at certain things, um, how we interpret narratives that we seem to be in, you know um, and we're often in those narratives uh, unconsciously. So the interpersonal helps us pay attention to that. In fact, there's a term in my field called internal rhetorics, which is basically the concept of mindfulness. But you know, you're basically talking to yourself, right? Uh, you're using rhetoric on yourself. The interactional is the next component, and that is about organizational awareness, social awareness, relationship building. Um, you know how we talk to each other, how we enter into different. Um, communities uh, with different discourses therein and navigate it effectively. The last component is the behavioral. And what that is, is teamwork, uh, getting things done. Uh, So it's the interactional applied to actually fulfilling a goal. Um, Another term for it, um, I've discovered is improvement science, which is basically taking the pedagogical concept of problem-based learning and applying it to the world at large right so problem-based learning is in a classroom and outside of a classroom but improvement science is, is that same idea outside of the classroom and for you know pretty much everyone and it, it's all about finding a problem in your immediate environment and working with other people also interested and invested in improving the environment and working together to the best of your ability to improve things right and it can be from you know, potholes in a road to, you know, uh, certain policies in your municipality or something like that. So all three of those components come together to make empowerment and you have to have all three be truly empowered. Right. So that's, what's going on with that. And I think it's a, a nice, you can see where rhetoric comes in with the interpersonal and the interactional and the behavioral, you know, it's, it's all about communication. Even if it's communication with just yourself, right? It's imperative. I think it's a, a nice alternative to um, current implicit bias and uh DEI training mainly. Um well I, there are a lot of reasons. I'll just give <laughs> I'll just give one here. Um, a lot of those trainings, uh even you know, the the ones that you know are well intentioned, um they skip the interpersonal. They go straight to the interactional. And that's the problem because when we enter into certain difficult conversations in difficult environments, um, you know, we're not ready for it. We're bringing our own baggage. We're there less to communicate and more to defend our egos, right? Where we we didn't take the proper step beforehand to enter into that conversation with an open uh, mind, heart and will, right? So, A lot of uh, anti-racist trainings, uh, they skip the interpersonal and go straight to the interactional. I think that's a problem. So um, I want to do this uh, in a way that emphasizes the interpersonal and then the interactional and then the behavioral, and then obviously discuss how all those things really overlap for empowerment. And um, another difference, uh, I'll stop talking, um, is that uh, with current implicit bias training, DEI training, you know, there's at least a tacit uh, understanding that it's white people who need the change, you know, right? they, they they need this um, training and everybody else is just here to make sure the training gets done, you know, or to um, make sure uh, certain problems or mistakes are, are uh, remedied, called out and remedied. Um, empowerment theory is for everybody. You know, uh, especially when it comes to the interpersonal and understanding the stories we tell ourselves and um, the uh, lenses through which we tend to see the world, being cognizant of those things, um, how we talk to ourselves about it. Right. Uh, So, yeah, that's about it. I'll stop there.
0: (laughs) Well, that I mean, that's a nice introduction then for what Jason has been doing. Jason, I mean, if you want to tell us a little bit, I know empowerment is also the basis of your new venture in social and emotional learning. So can you tell us a little bit about how you're tackling this and, you know, add to it though, why? I, I, yeah, I know your story. I think your story would be very interesting also to our listeners.
2: Uh, I would like, I would first like to uh, discuss how the framework that I've developed really melds with uh, empowerment theory uh, and how those two, just to show what Eric and I are looking to do and how how what we've been working on separately in separate parts of the country, in separate fields, uh, really goes together. Eric talked about the interpersonal. Uh, one of the tools of the Compassionate Humanism framework is that notice the narrative, uh, to to teach people how to how to a notice the narrative that we tell ourselves about that narrative we tell ourselves about ourselves the narrative we tell ourselves about other people and even the world around us and how to disrupt uh, thoughts of judgment and fear because those are the first things that typically pop up so to notice mindsets and thoughts of judgment and fear especially when they those thoughts may limit other's human potential, and to replace those thoughts with inquiry and compassion. So that's how the compassionate humanism really interacts and plays off of the interpersonal uh, that Eric mentioned. And then uh, with the interactional, the other component is that compassionate humanism centers human dignity of as a way of interacting with each other. And by human dignity, what, what I really am referring to is distinguishing the human from the being. And to acknowledge what that means, and what that means is separating what you see here. Uh, you know, this is the result of my biology and what you're interacting with is the result of my conditioned personality uh and we all have different thousands of differences there but as beneath that human level is 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 the being and despite all of those biological and personality differences our beings have only two qualities and all humans share those two qualities and that's the uh, The desire to avoid suffering and the desire to alleviate suffering when we encounter that. So if that's the level that we can get at whenever we're interacting with each other, uh, the amount of harm, the amount of racism, all of those things will deteriorate. And then the final component of empowerment theory that Eric mentioned was the behavioral. And that's where the three pathways of practice come in. Uh, And the three pathways of practice of the Compassionate Humanism Framework are practices that build awareness and equanimity, such as mindfulness. Uh, And then by front-loading self-awareness, what I like to talk about is, what is your aim? What are you aiming for? What are you working towards? And how are you doing that? And alignment. And by alignment, are you work are you working towards your aim in alignment with your core values? And then ah, uh, how do how do you evoke a sense of awe, uh, how do you connect with something greater than you? Uh, and and routinely do those things? And then also practices that celebrate our common humanity and break the walls of indignity? So really finding opportunities to celebrate and identify our similarities uh, from our shared past so we can also make preparations and plans for our hopeful shared future. And then finally is uh, practices that build kindness and compassion for self and others. So by doing those three pathways of practice and centering human dignity, and disrupting those mindsets of fear and judgment and replacing them with thoughts of inquiry and compassion, this is how we can really address the human condition that we're in now because we are we're spinning wheels getting nowhere uh, for a political objective that does not meet what is best for humans. so I'm really, really uh, looking forward to tackling this and really doing some amazing things uh, with you, Eric.
3: Likewise. So, first of all, I think it's fantastic. Uh, let me just get that out of the way. It's, it's um, and very much needed in today's discourse. But I'm gonna probe a little bit on this idea of whether it's really an alternative to critical race theory. Um, Critical race theory is an explanatory framework. It it answers the question, why is there, or attempts to answer the question, why is there disparity in the world? And it offers a set of theories having to do with systemic racism and systems bias and the like. Um, Whereas empowerment theory, it sounds to me, is uh, it, it puts the onus on the individual to perform, to uh, to grow, to, uh, to learn how to adapt to changing conditions and the like. Um, but it doesn't offer an explanatory framework for why there's disparity, unless I'm missing something here. Um, and I'm wondering if there's a version of this, or if you could take empowerment theory and turn it into an explanatory framework for why there's disparity as well, that would sort of compete in the public square with the assertions made by critical race theory?
1: Um, Yeah, I would like to uh, answer that. Um, When I say, uh, when most people say critical race theory, um, they're not talking about the theory so much as they're talking about the practice in um, educational context and in the workplace and things like that. Um, And they're not thinking about explaining disparities and things like that what they're complaining about is what's probably more accurately called critical social justice right. or critical white studies um and you know these are both derived from critical race theory right. but they tend to be c- critical race theory in practice and in practice that's where things get problematic um i think the um, the rising term right now is divisive concepts you know um there are uh, certain ways of uh, approaching DEI trainings, for example, uh, that are seen as divisive, um, putting certain people in certain categories based on uh, race or, or, or sex or something like that, treating people differently based on those immutable uh, concepts, right? So, so when I say it's a replacement for CRT, I'm I'm really saying it's a replacement for the practice of critical social justice. Um, in workplace trainings and and educational spaces, what empowerment theory can do, what it's supposed to do, is not really replace understanding or acknowledging racial disparities. it's It's presenting a better way to approach it, right? So if you are if you perfect, quote unquote, empowerment theory, you will be better able to address those disparities and get things done. Um, you know, to have concrete strategies that you come up with with other people to get things done. So it's not saying, ignore the racial disparities. It's saying, empower yourself so that you can deal with those racial disparities in productive ways. And I think that's missing from current um, DEI trainings and, and, and pedagogy. It absolutely
3: mm-hmm. is, and I think it's, Very important. Yesterday, I spoke to um, an African-American Jewish woman who said, you know, I I grew up under much more difficult conditions than my kids did. Um, But um, I ended up making it. She got her master's in social work, her master's in international relations and her doctorate in education. She said, I ended up making it, you know, by empowering myself in a way. If I was told that white supremacy was likely to hold me down, it probably would have and and i guess my question though is is there a competing notion to the idea to the explanation of disparity that 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 is simpatico with empowerment theory um that and i'm not and i agree with you, even critical social justice is not just a practice in terms of what we do to deal with disparity it's also has it also makes assertions about why there's disparity in the world if i'm not mistaken it says that there's disparity because there's oppressed and their oppressors, and the oppressors cause the conditions of the oppressed, um, which is true, by the way. I think in certain circumstances, and maybe partially true in others, and maybe not true in others. And so, how do we bring those concepts together?
1: Um, I, I can answer that. Please. Okay. Um, well, actually, I had a much better answer in my head before I said I can answer that. Now I got to remember. <laughs> um, but I. Let me, well, let me um, repeat the question I think I heard. Um, How are we also dealing with disparities, right? Um, How are we addressing those?
3: How are we explaining them also? How are we?
1: Well, Well, what empowerment theory does, it, 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 it brings back an appreciation for context, right? With a lot of these things, context is all but dead. You're applying these universal ideas to a specific situation to the point where, okay, you're white, this person's black, you're disagreeing with this person, therefore you're racist. <laughs> you know somehow this is racist, and that goes back to D'Angelo and her tenets of uh, anti-racist education, and and things like that. But uh, that's a contextual. You're not looking at the specific situation and engaging it accordingly and acting accordingly. Um, what empowerment theory does, especially when you get to the interactional and the behavioral it's 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 looking at this specific situation uh, pragmatically uh, which is to say, okay, based on what we have here, who's in the room, what the problem is, um, you know what how, how can we handle this how can we get along um, and how can we collaborate to improve the world right um, so that's how I see you know uh, Empowerment theory, uh, working with these uh, disparities is looking at it one situation at a time, as opposed to just having this universal blanket of meaning that you apply to everything.
0: Sounds like to me that <clears throat> that theory of empowerment could be used as a framework to teach DEI, SEL, all this kind of stuff. It's an actual framework itself versus trying to replace CRT or, some, or anything like that. Did I yeah. hear you right?
1: Yes, yes, yes. So, that's, that's more accurate.
0: Okay. Well, on that note, I've got, well, first of all, I've got to interject because I've got to laugh about something because everyone can hear that Jason, even though we're both from Texas, he has a, a great Texas accent. And when you first started talking about being, I thought you said being, and I it took me <laughs> a minute to go, oh, yeah, that's his Texas accent. So for anyone else who needs interpretation, being, being, that being is bean. being, <laughs> being I love it now you already know I love your accent. I just um I haven't turned mine on yet maybe I'll do that later um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you on that note so as a theory of empowerment is a framework, I know that you were in the SEL space in public school. Can you tell us where that went sideways and the reason that you're applying now the theory of empowerment in your own work and in your own paradigm for Teaching
2: SEL? So SEL uh, officially went off the rails in uh, December of 2020 by adopting, by officially becoming a leverage, a lever for equity and social justice. And by equity, they're talking about uh, equal outcomes. So there's this this idea in the culture now of promoting uh equal outcomes and i would say about 3 years ago uh, i started going to colleagues you know on a one-on-one basis and saying hey uh this these ideas that we're putting forth is is historically rooted in marxist thought and it's Negatively impacting the social and emotional well-being of the individual. Uh, I got a lot of pushback on that. something something I heard Eric mentioned in a <clears throat> in a in a previous interview was the because you know, part of Eric's story, I won't tell his story, but part of that story is raising questions about practices and things that, that were being said and the reaction. And he said, the reaction changed me. Uh, so the reaction that I was met with changed me. And I started to really look at what was happening within our culture, uh, work trainings, and the ideas that we were putting out in the in the schools. And what I believe is that the whole CRT is good. CRT is bad. The whole CRT debate that is happening is not really the conversation uh, to be had. And the conversation to be had is, you know, looking at what Eric's done with doing with empowerment theory and looking at the compassionate humanism framework that I, I've worked on is that what is, it's not a, is racism real or does it exist? Do Are there disparities? Uh, It's the question of how do we want to address them? Is it through this, the liberal framework, you know, the classic liberalism of the rights of the individual, uh, that framework, or is it through this postmodern neo-Marxist CRT framework? Like which which framework best aligns with your personal values and which, which worldview and narrative do you feel is beneficial for the future of humanity? And people need to, I, I feel, uh, choose one of those positions. Like, yes, I believe in the postmodern neo-Marxist movement, or you know what? I, I, I do believe in the rights of the individual Eric and I are are wanting to build up the individual uh, rather than tear down and 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 burn everything down, because society is essentially divided into builders and destroyers right now, and the telos, the purpose of the destruction, is is destroy, is a constant state of destroying, uh, and I believe that that idea is created a crisis on meaning making and a, and the mental health crisis. So back to, sorry, back to SEL. I, that whole idea of there is something in the school in the K 12 system that is designed to fortify and strengthen the individual is now purposed for essentially destroying the individual and i chose to step away from that and to pursue avenues uh to figure out how do we not only reverse this this trend but really provide something uh and begin building up
3: jason there a lot of the people who are advocating for sort of a crt oriented change in education whether it's actual crt or not is another question, are denying that there's any real change happening. They think it's a figment of our imagination. What evidence do you have through your own experience in the school system that tells you that there has been a significant change underway that needs to be pushed back in favor of more traditional social, emotional learning?
2: Uh, <clears> of <throat> I'll kind of start by going backwards. Uh, so I, as earlier I mentioned that I've been, tri- I've tried to have conversations with colleagues, uh, professional conversations about this movement and what it was doing and what it was about. And one of the final things that I said just a few months ago was, you know, at the root of this movement is an attack on human dignity and a rejection of the enlightenment. And after that statement, I was told to just don't talk about it anymore. And this so, was where, at what contest? Uh, this was in a in a professional meeting, uh, a, a you know a CRT based kind of discussion and conversation going on. Because uh, I've tried several avenues to approach this and to approach people and to really have open dialogue about what are the practices, what are the ideas that we're advancing. Uh, So the fact that in public education, uh, people are okay rejecting the enlightenment uh, and rejecting a notion of a shared truth uh, and rejecting the notion that we are a common humanity, we do we do have a shared history as a species, uh, and telling kids you are this because of your skin color and your gender. So we're advancing. We are giving the narrative to the next generation right now. Like it, it's trickled down. You know, into society that beginning August, we are putting this, this narrative, we're installing, essentially installing new software uh, in the minds of the younger children. Mm. And that idea is to destroy and there is no truth and intense tribalism. Which Do you the think athletes. this
3: is happening outside of your own school context? Do you see evidence that this is happening in other nearby school systems and other States and other counties?
2: Through reading educator blogs, uh educator magazines and trends and following edu- This is the, that is the only idea that's out there right now. And the, the tricky part is is that it's rooted in love and compassion, and contains a kernel of truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You know, you have kind-hearted and compassionate and well-intended people using a tool that is purpose for destruction. So, no matter what is in their heart, no matter what is in their mind, if they're using tools purpose for destruction, that's what's going to happen.
3: So do you want do you have a question, Jennifer? Or I have you, all out You go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. So um Jennifer and I interviewed a trans woman activist named Deborah Hayden, who said something that I thought might apply to this discussion as well. She was talking about how it's a lot to demand of people who are not trans to use pronouns, to make all the adjustments in their understanding of trans people to change their view of restrooms and the rest. She said there's a lot, and and that trans people need to meet them halfway. And I'm wondering if there's a halfway mark between the ideas that are promulgated in CRT, which basically says the system is at fault and those that are an empowerment theory that says the individual must take on responsibility, whereby both the system diversifies and allows for different approaches that might um, be more more respectful of human dignity in that way. And that the individual has also a responsibility to empower themselves within a system that may not be perfect, will never be perfect, will always make demands of them that are not perfectly fitted to them as an individual. What is your view on that?
1: Um. Uh- Well, with empowerment theory, remember the interpersonal, which is the most individualistic component of empowerment, it's just one third of it, you know? Um, And these components work as uh, checks and balances, right? So uh, there's no danger of hyper-individuality because the interactional is all about working, you know, with other people and and collaborating and negotiating meaning, right? Uh, socially constructing things, um, understanding already socially constructed things. You know, these are collaborative things. Uh, so you uh, you have to kind of relinquish the uh, individuality and work with other people. And then behavioral is, is comparable, but, you know, with a uh, clear telos, right? Um, so... Yes, what, what we're doing, we're, we're, we're bringing back individuality as a value, that's for sure. Um, but we're also acknowledging that no man or woman is an island and that we, you know, on an ontological level, we're, we're combined, you know, in, in that sense. We can't really live without, you know, other people. And that's also embraced in empowerment theory so yes we're 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 bringing back the individuality, right but uh it's not it's not a hyper individuality
3: it's not, and you're not de- you're not denying that systems matter and that systems might in fact oppress people in a certain way who don't fit into the system so neatly
1: right. The interactional is about organizational awareness, social awareness, um recognizing those systems so that we can do something about it, you know, so uh. There's a you know, level of what's called reality testing here, too. You know we're looking at the world for what it is or an, or a particular environment for what it is, and uh, figuring out how to best navigate it together, right? Um, so yes, I mean, this is not n- nobody's denying you know the power of systems. Nobody's denying the presence of racism uh, in in various situations. Um, what we're trying to do is figure out a more uh, productive way of approaching things like that and other issues. Hmm. You know
0: what I love about that, Eric, you said something about bringing back in context. and i I just love that word because I do feel like where we've created more of these monolithic group identities, there is absolutely no context. And these identities, Nowadays are based basically, you know, almost solely on the color of your skin or your gender, and so these very binary systems, but I'd like to talk to you, both of you, um, rhetoric I know is your jam, (laughs) so how have we gotten to this place, rhetorically, where we have gone from the individual, because, you know, talking about individuality, I mean, it's almost like you're a rebel now, right? I mean, that's like, that's what Republicans do, like Trump talks about that, right? You know, I mean, you get, and it's the most ridiculous thing because the individuality is something that, I, you, like, it, it was it, at one point a, a huge value of ours. And now it's become submerged to group identities. And so how did we get there Rhetorically where that has how do we manage our language to get us in this place? And this goes to what Jason also said on meaning-making. I mean, I think we've changed and we've manipulated the meaning of certain words to move us from individuality making that you know kind of uh, taboo to Cherishing and upholding group identity as the pinnacle
1: um, Well I have an answer to that.
0: Well, I, I think it. I do.
1: I think I do anyway. <laughs> um, the the narratives, you know, or the you know meta narrative um, that uh, around you know um, contemporary anti racism, uh, for example, uh, the definitions uh, of words that have been changed uh, in contemporary anti racism. All of these derive from basically one thing, a uh, blanket mistrust of classical liberal values, um, which includes individuality, uh, freedom of speech, equality, right, uh, deliberative democracy, all those things are considered um, concepts that maintain the status quo, and the status quo is white supremacy, right? So suddenly those things are not trusted anymore. Reason scientific method, those things are not trusted anymore uh, because they're not doing the trick. We need to do something else. So we need to move beyond individuality. We need to move beyond, you know, uh, whole season, right? Um, and we have to throw those things away and, and do something else. Um, what's more, and people don't talk about this enough. Derek Bell is uh, arguably the founding father of critical race theory. And by extent, I guess I guess the grandfather of critical social justice and, you know, critical whiteness studies and, and things like that. He wrote an essay in the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken, uh, towards the beginning of CRT as a movement called Racial Realism. And basically his thesis in, in that essay is that, uh, you know, institutional racism isn't going away systemic racism isn't going away it can't go away we can't beat it the best we can do is fight back in order to maintain our dignity right so if if you're convinced you can't win and it's really about you know maintaining your dignity what do you care about reason and rationality or even or even the truth right what do you care about those things and now we're getting back to the whole tear it all down thing that That seems to be a refrain in my field. You know, uh, I I assume it is in in others as well. So that's what's all, this is all coming from um, mistrust in classical liberal values and a lack of faith in our ability to change things for the better when it comes to race. Um, You put those things together, and you have things like the demonization of individuality and um, a, a lack of willingness to converse. Um, in a, in a reasonable way, right, and uh, all those things.
0: So, how do you get that trust back? Is that even possible without, I mean, just with destroying, or like maybe theory of empowerment is how we build that trust back if we were to em- employ that, right?
1: That's what I'm thinking. Yeah,
0: <laughs> you
1: know that that's uh that's my hypothesis
2: right now.
3: Mm-hmm. So. so- Years ago, I'm sorry, Jason, you want to chime in first?
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, so uh, one thing that's unique to humans is that we have the ability to see each other as we see ourselves, and that whenever we can do that, it basically creates a psychological situation where you cannot do that person harm, so... If we can practice doing that and what the world of critical race theory and intersectionality do is that they purposely, they separate us. So we cannot, we are, we are creating psychological systems now that prevent us from seeing each other as we see ourselves. Therefore, we will always harm the other and that mistrust that Eric talked about not just of cl- the classical liberal system but we are now setting up systems and structures to where we do not trust each other so the world of cr- if the critical race theorist if the critical th- if they're really if their hearts are set on improving the human condition and decreasing the amount of time then they have to abandon the practices that they're using right now because the practices that they're using right now are are purposed for destruction
0: and have engendered so, that yeah. distrust i mean they if we had distrust before we have it you know threefold now
2: threefold it's even then and I, I spend a lot of time hanging out in, I guess, quote, unquote, non-normative identity groups, <laughs> and to see what is happening in each one of those groups, the division and the mistrust of even within the group, how even the groups are fracturing and splintering. I'm like, well, that's what this this ideology was purposed to do. Right. It, the intention is to overthrow Western civilization. So right. that's and in order to do that, you have to completely break down the individual. You confuse them, mm-hmm. disorient them, and you make them think that they are worthless, and you get them to look at each other. We're being programmed to look at each other in the most negative ways. We're being even ourselves, no matter what identity group that that you're in, uh which oppressor group or which oppressed groups. We're being asked to think of ourselves in the most unpleasant way and think of each other in the most unpleasant way. And for some reason, we expect that doing that is going to yield a better version of us.
1: Right.
3: So, years ago, this goes back into the late 1990s, I was part of a very high level Black Jewish dialogue group with some real major folks in both the Jewish community and the black community. And uh, we would have discussions about all the problems in the world and school system in the district of Columbia and the rest, but not once in my memory, did we ever talk about why there was disparity. We didn't argue about that. It wasn't really on the plate. It was, what are we going to do about it? And at one point in time, um, we held a joint bus tour with some of the African-American groups where we went into sort of the inner city and looked at some of the issues. And at one point, a vice president of real estate for a major company who was Jewish had this aha moment and said, wow, there are no black faces in the commercial real estate business. I just realized that, none. I, I was totally blind to it. He didn't spend a second asking whether that was because of systemic racism, if it was because of just historic conditions of you know of black people not being in any proximity to the real estate industry if there was some cultural factor that might have been at work it didn't really cross his mind i don't think it was just that there was this disparity it was problematic we had to solve it and he created something called the real estate apprentice program which trained young black kids in real estate and gave them incredible opportunities and and over the course of many years he brought many black folks into the uh, commercial real estate industry and i'm just wondering like have we lost our way because we spend so much of our time and energy on these ideological questions about why there's differences rather than, yes, there's differences. We don't know. It's complicated. There are multifactorial reasons for them, but we just, we've got to go about solving them and addressing them, not about debating why they exist in the first place.
1: Yeah. I, I think we uh, overemphasize the problem and underemphasize the solution. Yeah. Uh, Trying to collaborate. It's a
3: good line, by the way, Eric. I'm going to use that.
1: Thank you. Uh, go right ahead. Thank you. Okay. Um and yeah, I I I think that's happening often. Um, I was going to say something else too, um, re- regarding <laughs> the um the interactional component and in everything you just said. Um, but I can't come up with it right now, so I'm done. <laughs>
3: Well, you gave us one of the best lines I've heard in a while. (laughs) So I'm going to overemphasize the problem and underemphasize the solution. And that is such a powerful cultural critique as well. It tells you where we are in our discourse and what's gone wrong when we're spending all this time talking about the problem and why it exists. You know, I've been very involved in criminal justice reform in the last several years, and it was really about dealing with the problem of mass incarceration. And at one point, I remember asking some folks who are very active, said, well, what happens if I don't believe that white supremacy is the root cause of all this? What if I think it's more complicated than that? And I got a really disturbing answer. It was like, you know, that basically said, you're not part of this coalition then. In other words, it, it was really all about the the problem and not, nothing about the solution in their view. And I think that's really problematic.
1: I Yes, I, you reminded me of what I was going to say. You know? And uh, now I forgot it again. Now I'm kidding. (laughs) 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 Write it down, please. (laughs) No, I mean, meaning and understanding and the best way to solve a problem are collaborative efforts, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. the interactional behavioral are all about that. They're all about collaborative efforts. The problem with a lot of contemporary anti-racism is that it's not looking for instances of racism it's already assuming they're there, right? And we're just going to figure out where it is or or how to explain it. They start with the conclusion that racism is there. Robin D'Angelo and people like that, actually say that explicitly. Don't ask whether something racist happened. Ask how it manifests in this situation, which is to say the racism is always already there, right? And if you're starting from that kind of a... you know, major proposition, you know, unquestionably, you know, then, then uh, you're already stifling yourself. and You're already forcing yourself to look at the problem more than a solution.
3: Right. You're not, it's not, doesn't exactly engender collaboration, does it?
1: When right. You
3: start with one group is completely a fault. And we know that there are historical reasons to blame one group more than other groups, but still, you're, when you start on that level, it doesn't exactly empower people to get involved to actually find solutions that make sense for everybody. Well,
0: right? not only that, but you find you—you know—what's that adage? You find what you're looking for. So if you assume racism is everywhere, you find it everywhere. You know, from dogs are racist to you know, math is racist, and and, and um you know, so much so. And and this is what I'll, you kind of want to tell this story. So I'm reading essays right now. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the judges for an essay contest from from students that re- revolve around issues of free speech and speaking up and speaking your mind. Um, thousands of essays. And I'm so dismayed because so many of these essays are based on I am this identity, group identity. And these are our young kids. And this is where I worry. And this is where I love the theory of empowerment, but this is where I worry with what Jason was saying with you know, social and emotional learning is that this is what we're teaching our kids. And it becomes, I think Jason mentioned this, it becomes part of the new mindset or part of the new wiring, the software, I believe is what Jason said, where we, Mm. when you kind of grow up that way and that's your wiring, then it's so much harder to rewire as you get older versus to teach habits when you're younger. And I, and Except said, my my experience is, I I'm seeing. I know that Jason said that he was seeing this in in his classrooms, but I'm seeing it in what's. I mean, every. I have to tell you, literally, almost every single essay. Not. I mean, I'm exaggerating. At least fifty percent, at least, have to do with race, and racial essentialism. Yeah. Hmm. And, and in it's some from ways, in the
3: United in States, in some ways, I wonder. If this entire enterprise is sacrificing the well-being of Black people in order to get white people to take more responsibility for their history and legacy, you know, and, and, and that that would be the ultimate double victimization, it seems to me. If if um, if we're trying to get white people to take responsibility for racism, and in doing so. Making it more difficult for Black people to succeed in a society that's not going to radically shift. That we're still going to have to do math, and you're going to still have to, you know, achieve in education, and you're going to still have to report to work on time. If all, if it just seems to me that that's, that that it's that's the biggest tragedy of the current discourse is it actually harms the people it's supposed to help.
1: Well, yes. Yeah. I have no response to that other than a uh, <laughs> exuberant head nod, you know, wholeheartedly. I, I right. Maybe, maybe
3: know. white people are doing a disservice to um, by, in some ways, by trying to, you know, make it so the only acceptable explanation in the world is is racism. They're just not helping. It's just not a helpful framework
2: for and, society and of uh, the. The white people, white people that are heavily bought into this idea uh, do not view black people in a positive light. And I can attest to that from conversations and things that they've revealed to me that I see them acting out of kindness, but I see, I see how they view people as less than. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I I see that in my interactions with people that say they care, but have been wired uh to believe awful things. Earlier, I heard I heard y'all talking about uh, you know how Eric mentioned we over simple, we overstress the problem, and don't really talk about solutions, and then how that's what we're doing. So that's all critical theory is. You know, critical theory, we talk a lot about critical race theory, but critical theory, the 1937 idea that was like, hey, if we give people this tool of critical theory over time, they'll destroy themselves. Uh, And what essentially what critical theory, you know, in one hand, you point out the problems, you see the problem in every situation in every human interaction, in every situation from the past, the problem is always present. And then also dream about utopia. Mm -hmm. Like, so that's why, you know, society is starting to understand, like, golly, we just talk about the problems and everybody is so cynical. Well, we've been given this idea to destroy ourselves. And it is that idea as a solution Finding tool is ineffective. Uh, And then, with the postmodern element of removing the notion of a a truth, uh, even removing the notion that uh, truth is possible, and combining those two things with intensified tribalism and intensifying othering, those things, the melding of those is essentially a a psycho technology that is being laid upon us, uh, and and is, and is wiring us. That is, that is now the culture and that's what's wiring us. And our brains are wired to fit themselves to psychotechnologies and psychotechnologies are just essentially information processing, uh, ways to link our brains to each other. And also ways to link our brains to like our future selves, our past selves and our current selves using like language, uh, exchange of money, religion and science and all these big frameworks are essentially psychotechnologies. And this ideology, this new way of, of being is being placed on us and our brains are forming to this whether we want them to or not so I think that's why it's real important work that uh, Eric and I are doing is calling that to an attention and saying listen we have a real unique opportunity here uh, the problem solving and things are are up on the surface we know what needs to be fixed we know what the problems are we know we've got these two worldviews that we can choose, but we're ju- humanity, I feel, uh, is at this bottleneck position, and we are either, uh, not to be too optimistic or pessimistic, but we are either, through that bottleneck, going to go the way that we did at the conclusion of the Bronze Age, which was enter the Dark Ages, or we're going to go the way of the Renaissance and Reformation, where this idea of the individual and the divine rights of man and all of that really happened
0: okay so on a final question for you guys which what where are you most concerned and where are you most optimistic so i mean to follow up with you what you just said jason i mean where do you, do you see that we're going into the dark ages or into a renaissance what are your hopes and what are your fears and what do you see that's aspirational and what, and what is we already know it's scary pretty much but
2: well my my hopes are the renaissance and my hopes and my fears are all placed on the children right now mm-hmm. uh I'm fearful that they will accept what the adults and what the establishment is telling them is truth uh but also what I am hopeful is that Teenagers and younger people are wired in a way to reject the things that they see in the world that don't make sense to them. So I'm very hopeful that young people will start to realize that, you know what, we're we're being played. Uh, generations above us have been played. Why don't we stop and why don't we do something else? So. A lot of hope on, on young people as well, and those working with young people to mentor and to inspire and to change the direction that way.
0: Eric, what about you? Any.
2: My my hopes
1: and fears? Yeah. My hope is that we come out of this and have a re enlightenment. You know, um, I don't know if we, uh, you know, create too many new concepts, but we do re-embrace some of the old ones, like reason. I like reason.
0: Yeah,
1: reason's nice. Reason's nice. Um, My fear is that because so many people are adamantly opposed to reason and dialogue and things like that, that um, they won't be able to, you know, uh, take steps towards empowerment, right? They're already Mm -hmm. too far gone. Right. Uh, and, and, and they know that if, if, if we can't trust reason and this is reason, then what are we going to do? There's a concept from a uh, rhetorician who um, passed away a few years ago named Wayne Booth, who talks about um, listening rhetoric and listening rhetoric um, at its best sense. And he has devolutions of it as he goes on. But in his best sense is I'm going to listen to you. You're going to listen to me. and We're both going to arrive at a truth. Right. Um, We're both going to arrive at something that works for the betterment of society, regardless of, you know, the solution we wanted to have or something like that. Mm -hmm. It devolves, though. And um, listening rhetoric, there's listening rhetoric uh, A, B, listening rhetoric C um, is a kind of negative version of it. And it basically says, I'm going to listen to you so that I can find your weaknesses and, and then destroy you. Right. So that's the, it's, it's bad faith listening. Right. Mm. Um, there is a. People, uh, a lot of people in anti-racist uh, circles, social justice circles, assume listening rhetoric. See. They just assume if you're not on their side, but you really just yeah. want to talk and have a sincere dialogue, mm-hmm. you're acting in bad faith. And then what you're really trying to do is use reason as a weapon to ruin us so that we can't get what we want. So if that's the attitude, I'm not entirely sure, you know, how to get past that other than modeling what it means to be empowered uh, as an individual and as a group, showing people, not telling people. You know, that's kind of where I'm going now. But my, my biggest fear is that listening rhetoric C will win out.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, we talked with Greg Lukianoff the other day, and one of the things that he was saying in terms of like free speech was, you know, social, we have to deal in a reality of social media. And that is a huge landscape that I'm guessing we all didn't grow up with it, you know, yeah. where it makes that that listening aspect really, really difficult, Yeah, I believe. Um, so that's that's a, a new challenge. I've got, Eric, I, this is a little bit of a goofy aside. I know that you like Buddhism yeah. and Buddhist rhetoric. And I, Jason and I, I don't know if you know this about Jason, we both lived in China. Uh, he he lived in Chongqing, I lived in Nanjing. So yeah. not that that's the birth, you know, Buddhism was born, we know it was yeah. from India, but we've got the, those Asian like influences and whatnot that we we both are kind of you know, attracted to give us some, end us off with some like good, perhaps where Buddhism and the theory of empowerment might intersect. And if there's anything to learn from Buddhism that might bring us to that moment that we're all looking for.
1: Um, in my studies, I, I I landed on what's called Nichiren Buddhism, which is a 13th century Japanese form of Buddhism that um, uses the Lotus Sutra as a primary text. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of fell out of favor and then towards the um, middle of the 20th century it had a resurgence um, and a lay organization of teachers really um, uh, educators uh, uh, saw the educational benefit to it um, because it had a lot to do with american pragmatism this form of buddhism overlapped with american pragmatism some of the theories of john dewey especially uh, George Herbert Mead, right? Uh, the uh, the importance of uh, em- empowerment and being oriented with a goal, and realizing that there's a difference between truth and value. Truth is what it is. We create value. We, if we can create that together, it will make for a better society, right? Um, these are all also aspects of Nietzsche and Buddhism. So I, I looked into that, and I I, I was trying to. Uh, analyze the the rhetoric of Nichiren Buddhism and how it overlaps with um, the tenets of American pragmatism. And I was going to explore that and do a very deep dive. But then wokeness happened and I got distracted. So here I am.
0: (laughs) Although it sounds like that's really interesting, uh, perhaps parallel to kind of some of the
1: stuff. It's explicitly against victimhood.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: explicitly. He says, don't, don't, you know, don't disparage your life at mm-hmm. all. Just mm-hmm. know that you can um, develop your inner Buddhahood. You know, mm-hmm. uh, victimhood is against my religion, I can say, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's very interesting.
0: Well, that was an awesome way to wrap, wrap up. Thank you so much, you guys. I appreciate your time.
2: Thank, Thank you. Thank you for heavens.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of hold my drink, like, or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website, where you can find what each of us is reading every week, different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line and join us next week. As we say, hold my drink and the conversation gets real.